<laughs> Need to fix this first. There we go. All right, so let's go Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have uh, the text up on the screens behind me in a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room and the little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, don't have access to one outside of this place, we'd love for you to take that one home. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. We value God's Word here, as I hope you can tell by now. Uh, maybe I don't have to repeat that, but, I, uh, but maybe I do. Um, we, we value God's Word here. It's the tool that God uses to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. It's the tool that He uses to, to, to shape us and, and, and the authority that we, by which we live by in this world. It's, it's also the primary means by which He makes Himself known to us as His creation. And, and so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, we would f- call it a win if you took that one home and start reading it, uh, reading it not reading it. Um, man, coffee hadn't kicked in yet. It's going to be a fun sermon. All right. Now, uh, I said Exodus, right? So, uh, not Genesis. Exodus. Last week, uh, JB finished off the book of Exodus with the story of Joseph. So, we started a series all the way back the week after Easter. It's now mid-June, and we have yet to get out of the book of Genesis, but now it's time. Exodus chapter uno, all right? And so... um, We've had a good time with it. This, our series is called The Story of God, and the premise is, is not too difficult. Uh, we believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Not, not just the New Testament, not just the prophetic stuff, the messianic promises in the, the back half of the Old Testament. We think the whole Bible is about Jesus. And, and, and the way we're, we're landing our plane there, the way we're trying to flesh out our argument for that is to walk through the major characters of the Old Testament. Guys like Adam and Noah and Abraham, women like Sarah or Leah. And, um, walk through the major characters of the Old Testament and ask the question, how does their story tell us about the much larger and much more beautiful story of God. That, that when we read their stories correctly, yes, they've got their own things going on. We're not trying to rip that away from them. But if we read them correctly, we walk away from their stories understanding who our God is better and understanding what He has done better. Right? The story of God. And so uh, our hope is that we walk away from their stories with a deeper understanding and a deeper love for who Jesus is and what He is done for us but that question the story of god question is a pretty big question right and so we've taken up the practice of breaking into four smaller questions how was this person raised up what made this person a seemingly bad choice what did god do to redeem them and then finally how does their story preach the gospel our hope is that in answering those four questions faithfully that we'll put ourselves in a really good position to answer the last question the story of god question very easily actually so y'all ready to jump into it this morning Who's our character for today? Moses. Moses. All right, let's figure out who our guy is. Not Charlton Heston. <laughs> Worst choice possible for God's story, probably. Savior of God's people? Question mark? You ready to get the party started? Exodus chapter 1. Let's read it together. Verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Jacob was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. Verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Okay, so we learned last week that Jacob's family ends up in Egypt. And things are going really well at the beginning, right? 
Uh, God, God rescues them out of the famine of the land of Canaan. God uses Joseph, that's the story we told last week, right, to save them. Right? He brings them from Canaan to Egypt. And in the process, oh yeah, God saves the empire of Egypt too, right? There's this famine in the land. God raises up Joseph to protect Egypt and his family from that famine. And in the process, God moves his covenant people, this one family that he's doing this mighty work in, from the land of Canaan to the land of Egypt. And Joseph's story ends with Pharaoh throwing all kinds of good things at him, right? He gives them the best of the land. He gives them a bunch of crops. He gives them a bunch of livestock. They are flourishing. As a family and as a burgeoning nation of people, they are flourishing. But then Jacob dies. And the Pharaoh that knew Jacob, he dies. And a new Pharaoh is raised up, and they, he doesn't know them. And all of a sudden, he's getting really nervous about this massive family that's growing and flourishing inside the border of his, borders of his own kingdom, right? So what does he do? He chooses to enslave God's people. But the Bible says that, that doesn't even slow them down. They keep flourishing. It seems like the more you press on them, the more God enables them to flourish. And somehow, they just keep growing and growing and growing. And so Pharaoh keeps ramping up the work, right? God's covenant people find themselves all of a sudden not simply as foreigners in a distant land, but as slaves. Property owned by the king of Egypt. And the text says that the Pharaoh made their lives bitter as they built monuments and cities for him. Now the text doesn't say so explicitly, but if we put the pieces together from the rest of Exodus and other parts of the Bible, uh, we learn that there's a gap between where we stopped reading in verse 14 and where we'll pick up in a second in verse 15. A really long gap. 400 year gap. They're enslaved. Their lives are made bitter. They're made to work. They go from a promised people to an enslaved nation. Yes, they're growing in numbers and they're growing in strength, but their lives are made bitter. But not just for a short season, 400 years. That's a long time. Like when I moved from Texas to New England, I, I got a sense, a deeper sense of what it means for something to be old. I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about stuff. Like, like I remember thinking growing up that a building that was 100 years old was just really ancient. We can top that in the city of Nashua, right? It's because nothing in, in East Texas has been around that long. I've, I've gotten a chance to go to, to Europe a couple of times for different things. There ain't nothing in this side of the ocean that can touch what old means to them. Right? 400 years. That's older than our country. By a lot. They're, they're enslaved as a nation for 400 years. God's covenant people, the family, he promised that he would make them into a great nation, that he would bless them. He, he promised that he would bless them and bless those who bless them, that he would curse those who curse them. That covenant nation of people, that special called out family is enslaved for 400 years. Bitter may not begin to touch it, that may be an understatement, right? But dawn isn't ready to break quite yet. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. 
So God dealt with the midwives, or dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strongly. Verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. The Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, the ma- now a man of the house of Levi, we're in chapter 2 now, now a man of the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with butamen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it along the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket along the, among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And she opened it and saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Verse 9. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So as a way of controlling the population growth of his slave nation, the Pharaoh uh, gives this edict, he creates this new law that every Hebrew boy is going to be killed upon birth. But the midwives don't do it. They lie about it. And God blesses them because they lied about it. That's something I fully expect to be turned in as a Q&A question this week. But I ain't dealing with it today. God blesses them. He says he gives them families. He dealt well with the midwives. But the story rolls on, and it's a story we've heard before, right? Levite boy marries a nice Levite girl. They have a couple of kids. This new law comes in, and they end up having Moses. What are they going to do now? They hide him. Right? They hid Moses. How long do you think you can hide a baby? After a few months, they can't hide him anymore. And so he's placed in a basket and floated down the river. And if you're wondering why she would do that, it doesn't make any sense. You're right. What a crazy crazy difficult circumstance to be in right what would possess a mother to do that Moses's mom has been forced into choosing between Moses probably dying floating in a basket down the river and Moses definitely dying the second he's found out what a terrible choice to have to make but that's the choice that's forced upon her right she makes the basket, she puts them in it, places them in the river. And the Bible says that Moses' sister follows the basket until it just happens to float by Pharaoh's daughter taking a bath. Just happens. Pharaoh's daughter wants to keep the child as her own. The text says that she knows it's one of the Hebrew children, so we don't know what her motives are here. She knows it's one of the slave kids. We don't know what her motives are, but for whatever reason, she wants to to keep it. And then Moses' sister pops out of the reeds and says, hey, I know a lady. You want me to go get her and have have her nurse this kid for you? And so the story goes that Moses' own mother ends up being paid to raise him until he is weaned on behalf of Pharaoh's daughter. 100% happenstance. Those of you who have been here long enough know better. (laughs) A couple years go by and Pharaoh's daughter returns to claim her Hebrew son. She's the one that gives him the name Moses because she drew him out of the river. She raises him in her own house and Moses grows up as a Hebrew living in an Egyptian home. He knows it. 
Everybody else knows it. It's an awkward situation for everybody involved. And I know that that statement may be causing some dissonance in you because it goes against what you think you remember about the story. And it's here, from this point on in the life of Moses, that I need to point out that while I think that the Ten Commandments movie may be one of the greatest films ever made, I also hate it with everything in my being. Dead serious. Like, I love the movie, but I also despise the movie. And the reason for that is because I can almost guarantee that everybody in this room over the age of 35 is picturing that movie as we walk through the narrative. Am I wrong? You're thinking of the actors playing the roles, and you're framing it within the context of the story that Cecil B. DeMille painted for us. Now, Moses not looking like Charlton Heston is an issue. But it's a minor one in comparison to this one. That half, two hours of the movie's four-hour runtime is dedicated to the next 11 verses of the Bible. We, but we can press in a little bit more. An hour and a half of that two hours, I went back and watched it this week, an hour and a half of that two hours is dedicated to the next five verses of the Bible. Just a little common sense math problem. How much of that hour and a half do you think is just completely made up out of thin air? Like, like all of it, right? Except for a couple of highlights. Like pretty much all of it. So, let's look at what the text actually says in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their, flock, uh, their father's flock. Excuse me. Verse 17. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Okay, so according to the text in front of us, the actual text of Exodus, Moses is in a war hero. He's not the architect of the great city of Ramses. He doesn't have some brotherly competition with Yul Brynner. And he doesn't have some kind of love triangle with a girl named Nefertiti. All movie stuff. Right? We also learn, unlike the movie, that he's not cast out of Egypt as a punishment for killing the Egyptian. He runs away from Egypt to escape that punishment. Now, why do I point all that out? It's not because I hate movies. I love movies. We have, we have 10 times, 20 times more movies than we ought to own. Movies are a big deal in the Willard House. It's not because I, I don't like movies over historical things, and it's not because I don't think that you need to fill out the narrative of a historical story so that you can actually tell a story well. Like, if you tried to take those 11 verses and turn it verbatim into a movie, it'd be a pretty crummy movie, right? Filling out the story is a necessary thing when you're moving from, here are the facts of the story to, let me tell a tale. That's okay. But there's a difference between being entertained and allowing it to affect the way we read the story. Now see, I, I point it out because we've got a second question to answer this morning. What made Moses a seemingly bad choice to be a part of God's grand story? See, if we add a bunch of stuff to the story that doesn't belong there, we might leave entertained. But if in the process we end up turning Moses, our guy, into the dreamy hero that Israel always hoped for, 
Well, we missed the point of why God gave us the story to begin with. So let's look at the text and see what this heartthrob with the cleft chin really is. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. So call time out real quick. Uh, why Jethro instead of Ruel? All right, some of you may have that question. I don't want to have to deal with it later. All right, um, so Ruel, we think, is his name. We think Jethro is his title. All right, Jethro literally means excellence. All right, and so we think that as the priest of Midian, he's called Jethro, the excellent one. All right, and so that's why you see two names for Moses' father-in-law there. You're going to see him referred to from now on as Jethro, but we think that's what's going on, one guy with two names. All right, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet, not being, yet, was, yet it was not consumed. Excuse me. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. I'm sure the movie got that one right. God definitely has a silky bass voice. All right, verse 5. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Call another little time out right there. In the movie version of the story, Moses immediately after this moment accuses God of wrong for not hearing his people. The Bible version has Moses hiding his face from the glory of God. Let that difference sink in. Press on. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 18, And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Chapter 4, verse 1, then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is in your hand? He said, A staff. He said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Scaredy cat. Moses, but the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. 
And so he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Verse 8, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water of the Nile and pour it on dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? What makes him, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So why is Moses a seemingly bad choice to be a major figure in God's story? I mean, he's got this pretty good start, right? He's got, this, he's got God's providence over him from the very beginning. God rescues him out of the infanticide. He ends up growing up in the king's own house. Moses has a good start. But then he murders a dude. Moses is a murderer. Yeah, it's vigilante justice, but that doesn't make it right. Moses is a murderer. Moses killed a man. And then he flees the punishment for that crime. He's not even man enough to stand up to it. He runs off. Again, get our heads out of the movie. He's not sent off with a staff over his arm that becomes his staff walking stick. He flees to escape the punishment. He ends up in the land of Midian and he meets a nice Midianite girl and they get married, they have a kid and Moses spends the next 40 years on the shepherd ship. The next 40 years. Until one day, God shows up in the form of a bush on a mountainside that's burning but yet somehow not being consumed by the fire. What does that look like? I have no idea. Next time you see one, make sure to pull out your phone, get a video, post it on Facebook so I can see. I got nothing. God speaks to Moses through this burning bush, and he tells them that he has heard the cry of his people, and that he's going to send Moses back to them to be God's mouthpiece as he rescues them out of bondage. So what does Moses do? He gives an excuse for why he can't. In fact, he gives excuse after excuse after excuse for why he can't do what God is asking him to do. First, he's worried that God hasn't given him his first name. I think God is perfectly within his rights to just smite him right there. But what does God do? Tells him his name, right? I am who I am. In the, in the Hebrew, it's more literal than that. I be who I be. He is irreducible and simply is. There is no existence outside of him, independent of him. He is. He says, this is my name forever. I am. Then, Moses is worried that they won't believe him without a sign. God, does God have to give him a sign? So what does God do? Gives him multiple signs, right? Staff turns into a snake, then turned back into a staff. Hand becomes leprous, then turned back to being healed. He even promises the plagues, right? I'll remind you that God is, Moses are having this conversation right now with a bush as a medium. Moses is talking to a bush that's burning yet not being consumed. He's hearing the audible voice of God in this moment. Do you think God is capable of delivering on his promises here? Probably so. So how does Moses respond to that? Well, he's worried that he's not articulate enough. I just don't talk good. But, 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 I stutter. 
So how does God respond to that? Well, first the Bible says that the anger, anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses. That's a fun day. And yet, and still yet, God is patient towards them, still shows him grace. He brings Moses' brother into the mix. In fact, it says that he's already on his way to him. God knew this conversation was going to play out exactly like this and had Aaron heading that way even before this conversation happened. Brings Aaron's brother into the mix. A brother, remind you, he probably hasn't seen for about 70-ish years by now. Moses keeps offering up excuse after excuse after excuse, and God, in his magnificent grace and patience towards him, just keeps taking those excuses away. God, in his goodness, keeps batting them down, pursuing him. Moses isn't exactly making God's job easier here, right? Like, don't we tend to think in these terms? Like, God needs to raise up a good guy to finally be that mouthpiece. Does God need Moses to be his mouthpiece? Not for a second. God can do this much more efficiently without Moses. And yet, for some reason it is God's will that he raises up that guy. He chooses Moses. Why? Because God's story is a redemption story. Which raises the next question, right? How does God redeem him? So let's tell the story real quick in our own words. Moses listens to God and does what he says. He relays God's message to Pharaoh that God demands that he let all the slaves go. Pharaoh doesn't exactly jump at the idea. I don't think I would either. Let your millions of slaves go. Okay. The Bible tells us that Pharaoh's heart hardened in Exodus 14 in order to bring God more glory through this. So God rolls out the ten plagues. And by God's design, with each one, Pharaoh gets a little more obstinate. And by God's design, with each one, God gets more and more glory by showing more and more power over Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. You know what the Ten Commandments are. You're good church kids. Water turned to blood. Frogs, gnats, flies. All the livestock dies. Boils, hail, and raining fire burn up the crops. Locusts come and eat up all the rest of the crops. Darkness for three days. All setting the scene for the final plague. The angel of death would pass over the land of Egypt, killing the firstborn in every household, except for those who trusted the Lord's provision through the covering of a spotless lamb. God used Moses to break the will of the mightiest king in the mightiest empire of the land. God used Moses to crush him and make a name for himself. Which sets the stage for us to answer question four this morning. How does Moses' story preach God's gospel? Well, for starters does so characteristically. Moses is the last guy you would choose to be the spokesperson for a holy God. Right? Like when you want a spokesperson, you want somebody to, who represents your organization or your personality well, right? What about Moses makes you think, mm, his God is holy? Nothing. Moses is the last guy you would pick. It, and listen, as we've seen consistently throughout our series so far, especially throughout the entire book of Genesis, that's the point. Moses is a murderer. He flees consequences. He offers excuse after excuse after excuse for why he can't do the thing that God is asking him to do. He legitimately has a speech impediment. He's not lying in that moment. He's not eloquent. He's got a problem. His credentials are the opposite of the guy you would want to be, the mouthpiece of the Lord. But this story isn't ultimately about Moses. It's about the God working through Moses. 
because God is the one doing something here. It doesn't matter how sufficient the tool is. He can handle it. God preaches the gospel through Moses' story characteristically. He also preaches it typologically. A type is a word that we haven't used here before, uh, but it's a theme that we've been walking through uh, all throughout our series so far. Uh, we've been using the word shadow. Moses is a shadow of something much bigger than Moses. God raises up someone to be a rescuer of his people out of bondage if they will trust and follow him. Sound familiar? This is a consistent theme throughout the entire Bible, right? Over and over and over again, we see a God who raises up the, the, the one you would never expect, the one who is atypical of, of who you would think the rescuer would be. He raises up the rescuer, and if God's people would point their, their, their faces towards him and trust him and follow him, they would be rescued out of bondage. Like, I don't know how much, how familiar you are with the Old Testament, but this is literally the cycle that happens over and over and over again. We're going to get into the judges here in a couple of weeks. That's what happens over and over and over again for a period of about three or four hundred years. Over and over and over again. This is a consistent theme throughout the entire Bible. If we're smart, we'll probably pay attention to that. Because God may just be pointing to a much, much deeper rescue. But there's a third way that Moses' life preaches God's gospel. He preaches it characteristically. He preaches it typologically. He also preaches it covenantally. Covenant is essentially a, a contract. God's people are enslaved and God's doing something about his end of the deal. Pharaoh, if you don't know the story, ultimately relents. He lets the people go free. God, God uses Moses to lead the people to the foot of Mount Sinai. And there, they're given what? The Ten Commandments, if you're a good Jewish person, you would just call it the law. The law. God's word for his chosen people. Moses goes up on the mountain, God speaks, and Moses comes down the mountain with God's commands on tablet of stone. Through Moses, God gives us the law. And for a couple of millennia to the Jewish mind, it would be impossible to separate the law from Moses himself. Yes, it's God's law, but he used Moses to do it. And so when we think of Moses, we think the law. Thank you, Moses. Now, why does that matter? Because the law has two overarching purposes over and above all the other good purposes it has. It has countless purposes, but there's two that we can point to that are over and above reason why they're more important than all the others. And the first is just to reveal the character of God. God's commands are eternally consistent with his character. Eternally consistent. We say that another way. God has never and will never command something of his creation that he does not already exist in perfection himself. Now, that's a massive sentence. I'll say that again, right? God never has and never will command anything from his creation that he does not already possess in perfection for all of eternity. He never asks you or I to do anything that's inconsistent with his character. I mean, so think about the commands of God for a second. Commands us to love, commands us to, towards compassion, to commands us to have our hearts focused on the right thing and not be idolaters. God is those things in perfection. The law reveals the character of God. God used Moses, Moses, to reveal his character to us. Which means, church, we get to know God more deeply today because of what he did through Moses. We have Moses to thank for that. Without the law, we don't know God as well as we do. Is there coming a day where we will know him more fully? Yes and amen, but that day ain't here yet. And so today, what are we dependent on? The law. We get to know who he is through the law. And God raised up Moses to give it to us. And what God did through Moses 
is passed down generation after generation after generation to us. We get to know God. There's a second overarching purpose of the law, and it's the one that's really cool for our purposes this morning. It's to reveal our need for a Savior. Let's look at one more text, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3 verse 9 says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. He's quoting some Old Testament prophets there, it sounds like. Verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. It's a big word that means pay, uh, debt payment. For God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what's the point of, of Romans 13? What's Paul trying to say? He says the law can't save you. Plain and simple. Why? Because there ain't a soul in this room who's capable of living up to it. Whether we're talking about you, whether we're talking about me, whether we're talking about that neighbor down the street that you think has it all put together. Nobody can live up to God's standard here. No one is actually capable of living up to the law that God hands down. The Bible describes this as failures before we even get out of the gate. I don't know, Woodard, I'm pretty awesome. In love, let me shut it down for a second. Have you ever, ever in your life loved any created thing more than you love God himself? You missed the first one. You want to go for the other nine? According to God's law, you and I are a lawbreaker. And will not the judge of the earth do what is right? Here's what's crazy. According to Paul here in Romans 3, God's playing the long game. The Bible says that he knew we weren't able to keep the law even before he gave it to us. He knew. He knew we would fail. He knew we would fail utterly. So why would he do that? Because there's a purpose to the law that's much deeper than just, here's how you're going to act before me. Because in Moses' day, there was one to come who could keep the law. Jesus would step onto the scene as one who perfectly kept God's commands because he is God himself. He went to the cross as a 100% innocent man. He died a death that wasn't owed to him. The word Paul uses in Romans is propitiation. It means a debt payment. That we owed a, a debt and he paid it on our behalf. God steps in and says, I'll own this one. I'll handle it. I got it covered. Jesus paid the debt that is owed to us with his own blood, the Bible teaches. So in order for us to understand the weight of what Jesus has done for us, we need to see the weight of what it was actually owed. Like if, you, if you're eating supper and you, you go to a restaurant and you, 
you order the thing that you want on the menu, but you, you ever been to a restaurant that doesn't have the prices on the menu? That's a dangerous place to be. I don't have a lot of experience there, and usually it's short. Right? If someone were to pay your bill and you didn't know how much it was, like you'd be appreciative. But if you were to come to find out later that, that was like a $200 meal, that changes things, right? Like, like I love the brother who, who covered my, my, my burger at McDonald's. That's really great. I, I, man, we, let's go hang out. I'll buy, you the, I'll buy you a burger next time, right? But if I'm at a, a, a nice like, anniversary dinner with my wife and the waiter comes over and says, somebody from the other side of the restaurant covered it, man, that changes things. There's a different level of appreciation there, right? The Bible teaches that we needed to see just how separated we were from God. So God gives us the law. We were separated from God before the law. That happened in the garden. But hundreds, hundreds of years later, millennia later, God steps in and says, they need to see just how great this debt is. So he hands down the law. So that we could fully grasp the absolute insanity of what God has done on our behalf. Because I'm a failure before I get out of the gate on item number one. Right? Jesus paid the debt that is owed to us with his own blood. We were separated from God and the law was given to show us just how far that separation is. And by God's grace, he raised up Moses to help us see it. Thank God for Moses. By God's grace, he raised up Moses, spoke his word to him and through him in order to properly set the stage for his word to one day put on flesh and dwell among us. God raised up Moses for a wonderful reason. There's one overarching theme to our series. God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And so today we learn that, right? God raised up Moses to be a shadow of a more perfect Moses to come in Jesus. The story of God is no small deal. This is the greatest action adventure drama the world will ever know. It's in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. God is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason. That his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. It's the story of God. But how do we respond to God's word today? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you press in, right? You do that through his word, right? We've been talking about it all morning. Consider starting with the book of Exodus. It's better than the movie. That's what he's given it to us for. You want to press into God, you do it through his word. Jump in. We can take another step, though. Maybe Moses' story feels familiar to you because it's just like your story. You've got excuse after excuse for why you can't walk into the thing that God is calling you to walk in. Maybe even some of them are legitimate excuses from the perspective of the world. Moses had one. Hear me. God wasn't handcuffed to Moses' insufficiency. He wasn't hoping someone more talented and trustworthy would stumble along the burning bush on the mountainside. He planted himself there for the purpose of redeeming Moses. He orchestrated the events in Moses' life for the purpose of redeeming Moses. Listen, that means God gave him even the legitimate excuse. And God gave them the legitimate excuse for the purpose of working in spite of that legitimate excuse. So hear me, beloved. Don't you dare Say no to the God who made you. Don't do it. It's a dangerous place to be. But I, I'm just not, 
Who's responsible for you? Who gifted you, wired you, put you together in your mother's womb the way he did? Who cares if your excuse is legitimate? I think he can handle it. God made you just like you for a reason. By all means, repent of sin, grow in godliness, but, but take what he's given you and use it for his glory, whether you think it's a, a positive or a negative. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Today's a good day to repent of those things if you've got to. I have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that's something that would be helpful for you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus. I'm glad you're here. Keep hanging out. Keep pressing in. You can respond to God's word this morning too. How? You guessed it, by meeting the one that this story is all about. By meeting the one that this story is all about. You can respond to God's word by repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus alone for salvation. The Bible teaches that all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We'll have some folks up front here, myself included, to talk and pray with you. Maybe today's the day you want to do that. Maybe today's the day you want to take that step and say, you know what, I'm in. Maybe you've been wrestling with it for a while. Maybe this just hits you like a ton of bricks today. I don't know. God does different things in different people. But we'd love to introduce you to the one that this story is all about. I think he's kind of rad. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the story of Moses. Thank you for the story of Moses. God, I am far more like Moses than I like to admit. I am an excuse factory. And the things you call me to, usually the things I want to get out of. And yet you pursue us. You are patient and gracious towards us. You continue to engage even when we rile your anger. Oh, how you love us. God, I, I pray that we repent of sin this morning. Would you give us the courage to walk in obedience? God, for those in here who don't know you today, would you draw them to yourself? Would you show them your face? Maybe even in a burning bush experience. I don't know what that looks like. But you used it before, maybe you'll use it again. I don't know. Okay, we love you. We're dumbfounded that you call us your own. But you are good. Help us respond well in this moment. In your name. Amen.